Hello, it's Monday, June 19th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, David Brady, Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And Doug Rivers, likewise a Stanford political scientist and Hoover Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based internet survey firm. Gentlemen, welcome back. Nice to be here. I have to ask, were you in cap and gown yesterday sitting in Stanford Stadium? I was not. I went, uh, took a couple students out at our house for breakfast, but... Uh, decline the uh, heat. Don't Air sure. conditioning seems like a better choice to me. I have to believe that if Stanford University is serious about climate change, it's going to have to move its graduation ceremony into May. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to start dropping at these things. So we have a lot to get to today, tomorrow being the fifth month anniversary of the Trump administration. But before that, let's go on the other side of the pond. Doug, you were involved in polling in the British SNAP election, not the special, the but the one SNAP, got as right. call it. And you got it right. Yes, uh, YouGov is headquartered in the UK, and uh, we're a prominent uh, pollster in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't weren't keeping up with the British election, uh, in 2015, uh, most of the polls in the UK failed uh, to uh, project a large uh, conservative majority. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, a fair number of the polls predicted uh, that Brexit would fail. Uh, in fact, it uh, passed, and that resulted right. in the replacement of the Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, by Theresa May, who has been negotiating Brexit. She called the snap election uh, six weeks ago uh, with the idea of increasing her majority. She was up uh, 20-some points in the polls. It seemed like it would be an easy election. Uh, she was advised by some prominent Americans, uh, like uh, Jim Messina, who uh, ran the Obama campaign, right? one of the Obama campaigns, uh, Linton Crosby, a prominent Australian pollster, uh, who were highly confident. Um, we released a model which predicted each of the 650 constituencies um, uh, roughly 10 days before the election um, and predicted that uh, the conservatives would lose their majority and would get a hung parliament. Um, this was a bit of a shocker. The pound dropped two points in reaction to our uh, our poll release, um, and it was ridiculed by uh, uh, the conservative campaign, especially Jim Messina, who took to Twitter to uh, um, say that he was, uh, if he wanted a good laugh, look at our poll. Uh, What's he saying now? <laughs> he's going quiet on Twitter. It's quite surprising. Um, <laughs> And uh, the, the result was that uh, the Tories did lose the majority. It was a shock to the betting markets. Most of the polls had them winning by a comfortable margin uh, uh, by as much as 12 or 13 points, uh, when in fact uh, they ended up winning by a little over two points. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting pattern for Americans uh, in that you see similar things to what happened in the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election and what we may see in the future. Uh, First, you saw this increasing polarization in the U.K., particularly by age, uh, that uh, the uh, Tories were winning by 40 to 50 points more among people over 65 than they were people under 25. similar to the education and age gaps that we saw in, uh, in the U.S. election. 
Uh, the difference here was it was a resurgence of the left. Uh, the the uh, labor was led by Jeremy Corbyn, who was generally not considered a credible prime minister. He's hard left. He makes Bernie Sanders look very moderate. Um, in up to the election, there was polling on which candidate you would prefer to have as the next prime minister. Mm -hmm. And Theresa May, despite running a very poor campaign, still uh, won that throughout the election. Uh, Corbyn did not talk about Brexit. This election was not fought on that. Uh, and, uh, and Corbyn had actually supported Brexit, I believe. Uh, mildly. No. Mildly, but he uh, was not opposed yeah, to Yeah, he was mildly in yeah. favor. Brexit is an anti-neoliberal, uh, uh, which is their term for free trade, uh, to less extent free movement of people, which are the big issues there. Um, but what Corbyn ran was a uh, big government, uh, increase taxes, um, provide uh, you know, more social services, more benefits uh, to people. Um, and uh, that worked well, and that's mm -hmm. probably uh, what I think you're likely to see from um, the Democrats in 2020. So let me throw two questions at the both of you. Um, I read a lot of different explanations for what run on here, and I saw British voters reacting to a sluggish economy and taking out their frustrations on the Tories. <coughs> I saw stories blaming this on Theresa May just being an incredibly lackluster candidate. I saw stories talking about how British millennials are not unlike American millennials. They like free stuff. And, and one thing that Corbyn was talking about was, as did Hillary Clinton, free college. So question number one, the two of you, what is your one takeaway in terms of what caused this? And then segueing out of that to the second question, if you're the Republican Party and you're the incumbent party in America, similar to the to Tories in England, what has you worried coming out of this election? Dave? Well, I'd say the first thing is don't call snap elections. Uh, Not much of a problem in America. Right? Yeah. So uh, my the takeaway for me is probably all uh, the takeaway for me is that uh, I, Jeremy Corbyn is a bad candidate. Uh, nobody uh, that David Runciman, all sorts of people that I know, political analysts over there, don't think he's very good. And yet he managed to do. They managed, Labor managed to gain seats in an election which they should have lost. So I do think there's some of the resentment there. I do think part of it is uh, like in the United States, uh, uh, not acceptable alternative candidate. Uh, that's what happened to Hillary Clinton with undecideds. They moved that direction. And so that that my big takeaway is that. Uh, there's change afoot, and uh, nobody, no government yet has sort of solved, uh, solved the economic problems. Mm -hmm. Well, one story that was uh, going around London was that Theresa May looked at uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign and said, I want that, and that's what she got. Um, the striking thing to me is the willingness of people to vote for alternatives uh, that are not conventionally acceptable. And uh, Donald Trump uh, and Jeremy Corbyn are in that category. Uh, these are not people that you would have considered uh, reasonable candidates. Uh, and uh, they come from completely different parts of the Bernie ideological Bernie Sanders, spectrum. I'd say the same. Sanders, too, is a socialist. But I mean, uh, seriously, if you listen to Corbyn, uh, he is not willing to disavow support for hardcore dictators, so mm -hmm. I guess he shares that with Trump. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he is hard left in the, uh, 
and Labour spent 30 years in Britain uh, getting to the uh, elections where Tony Blair was able to throw off the laborers at the, uh, in the pockets of the unions. Um, and they're at risk of uh, throwing that away. Well, I, I, it seems to me that uh, the wider voters turn to these candidates. Uh, but people are unhappy. Uh, and the fact is that while economic globalization has done, brought billion or more people out of poverty over the last 600 million alone in China, mm -hmm. uh, the effects on the industrial OECD countries uh, has been mixed. So in the United States uh, and in the northern parts of England, uh, the trade has not been good for uh, particular regions, mm -hmm. and, and they react, and I think they react against establishment candidates. I guess, you know, I would certainly disagree on the substance that trade has been bad for us or for anybody else. I think right. trade's been uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree incredibly uh, good. good for the American economy, but not nearly as good as it has been for other countries around the world. Mm -hmm. What's happened is that as the growth engine has stalled, and we really have had anemic growth um, for 15 years, um, and uh, similarly in Europe, um, it's hard to make the argument that things on average are getting better. Uh, and so what takes over is the people who have been hurt by trade, and there are people who have been. You right. know, the fact that trade increases uh, growth overall doesn't mean that it benefits everybody. Uh, those people who are much more intense in their feelings uh, are going to be heard more. Uh, it's going to motivate them more than the people who are basically doing okay but not great. Um, All right, one final question, then we're going to leave the old country for the new world. If economic discontent, if voter frustration is such in Britain as it was in America, then why isn't Angela Merkel right now running for her life? Why aren't her days numbered? Why does she seem to be doing the rather German well in the German economy polls? is uh, not like the British economy. The German economy is actually in uh, pretty good shape. Unemployment's uh, under 5%. Yet they do have uh, a rather, you know, a source of frustration, yeah, which they, is... They have a, They do quite well exporting. So, um, and at one last point on that, Europe, for Europe, on the immigration of people, in the U.S., immigration and trade were tied together. Mm -hmm. But they're not. They're not in European. Uh, Europeans, because they do so much trading with each other, uh, immigration is an issue, but trade as such is not. Well, recent polling has looked good for Merkel, mm -hmm. um, but I would not assume that... Uh, He's not out of the woods yet. Right. Until right. it happens, uh, we, every election we've seen recently has had surprises. Uh, the French elections, uh, they've managed to... Uh, win the presidency and uh, huge majority. a huge majority uh, uh, for a party that didn't exist uh, mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago. Uh, so, I don't know, I will avoid uh, making predictions as much as I can. Right, that election's in September, right? Yes. All right, well, let's We will be doing the same thing we, in Germany well, let me that put we did this, in... Let the, me put this the same right. way if... Uh, if you had to bet today, Tug, how would you bet? I'd bet on Merkel sure. in a minute. Okay. Yes. But I, Not I to say something can't happen, but... At this stage, I would have lost my bets on, uh, on May in 2017, mm -hmm. on uh, Clinton in 2016, 
on Brexit in 2015. Probably a good uh, thing you don't bet then. Yeah. Yeah. But you're consistent. <laughs> All right, let's let's shift back to the yeah, U.S. So if you just do the opposite, you would have done pretty well. Exactly. The last four or five elections. River says, "Buy you sell." <laughs> All right, let's shift back to the U.S. Tomorrow's June the twentieth, which means five months since Donald Trump took office. Uh, Dave and Doug, I went back and I went through the Economist YouGov weekly poll archives, and here's what I found: that Trump's high water mark in terms of approval is about forty three percent, and the lowest was about thirty nine percent. He's in about a four percent range at most times. If you look at his disapproval, his Low water mark is about 46%. His high water mark, I don't mean that in a positive way, but his greatest disapproval number is 51%, a 5% uh, swing. This is not necessarily volatile. It's actually pretty consistent. So let me ask you fellows this. Five months into this presidency, are you surprised by what the polling is showing about Donald Trump? I'm going to turn the first part of this over. The reason the YouGov polls don't move as much as the others is because uh, they're sampling. They have a better sample. The same people uh, are responding. But I'm going to turn that over to Doug. Explain that. You did it to me once. Yes. So uh, we have a panel uh, where people answer surveys on a repeated basis. Um, so we are able to control the sample composition. So it doesn't bounce around from more Trump supporters, more Trump voters in 2016 uh, to fewer, depending on the week. Um, but having said that, um, the other polls are only slightly less stable than ours. Uh, we are not seeing, uh, except for the Rasmussen poll that had Trump at 50% approval, um, a complete outlier, but of right. course he retweeted it immediately. Um, you know, I mean, all the polls have shown Trump roughly in that range. Um, that is, uh, it, he's obviously not very popular, right. but on the other hand, uh, the floor hasn't fallen out from underneath him. Uh, George uh, uh, W. Bush at his nadir was uh, into the 20s, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was, uh, I forget what uh, Bush's low approval was among the Republicans. Yeah, oh, it was, uh, yeah, it got down the 40s, I think, 30s right. maybe. I, I don't think it was quite that far, but mm -hmm. um, we aren't seeing anything like in the past where mm -hmm. um, the whole country would move in one direction. We've got a level of polarization here. Right, but here's what's interesting, and this is timely to talk about since tomorrow, there is a special election in Georgia yeah. where the Democrat may or may not win. I think it's the right. most expensive House special election ever yep. run in this country. It's Newt Gingrich's old district. Dave, you've been following Republican numbers with Donald Trump, and while the floor hasn't collapsed on Trump, you do see a slight erosion. Yeah, uh, the Trump, Trump support uh, from the start uh, has gone down among independents. Their independents are less supportive of him now than they were. Right. Uh, it's kind of a steady downward progression. Mm -hmm. And Republicans uh, are moving in that direction, but it was, I think the high was like 85 points in the last couple polls. It's been 75, 76. It may move around two or three points, right. but it's it's a significant drop. But Doug, if, if Trump were running for re-election today, he would be in trouble with those numbers. Right. That is, he needs to be as he was in the election, above 90% among Republicans. Right. Now, you're, you were saying before we came on air that it's rather interesting when you look at when you ask voters and Republicans in particular questions about Trump in terms, for example, about truthfulness and honesty. They're still hanging in there with him. Right. These are not great numbers, but the bulk of the Republicans, that is over 50%, say right. that Trump is more honest uh, than other presidents. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also asked, uh, because he claimed that he'd pass more legislation, 
than any other president except maybe, maybe FDR, mm -hmm. uh, whether he had passed more legislation. And uh, about a third thought that he had passed more legislation than other presidents, which is not yeah. remotely close to the In the, the point about uh, honesty, I think we're, we're getting a couple things in there. A part, big hunk of that is uh, uh, many people mean by honesty authenticity, right. i.e. he says what he thinks. Right. Tells let, it yeah. like it is. Right. Yeah, let me point out one other thing on that. If we ask the question, how's the, uh, is the economy getting better? Mm -hmm. uh, here's some interesting numbers. In April of 2017, 78% of Republicans thought the economy was getting better, only 24% of Democrats. But in October... Of 2016, 62 percent of Democrats thought it was getting better, and only 15 percent of Republicans. So, not only on the getting better question, but on the question: Are you better off personally? Your family better off personally than you were a year ago? There are big swings in that. So, Doug, Doug is right. The people, uh, his base has not fallen out from him, and people's party is going a long way toward determining their view. We certainly have seen a. You know, some weakening, but to put it in uh, perspective, you know, it's on the order of 10 points. Yep. It's not, you know, 30, 40 points, at which point Republicans would be fleeing from it. Let me say one thing about Georgia 6, uh, which is an interesting race. That's a Republican district, but it's not a, you know, it's not a Republican district where they win by 30 points. I think Hillary lost it by barely one, two, three points, something like that. It's very, it's very close. It's suburban Price Atlanta. Won it. it's, yeah. Price won it pretty easily. Right, he did, but he was she, incumbent. She, yeah. she, right. she lost it barely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a uh, district that has relatively high education levels, mm -hmm. uh, and that is a group that Trump does not do terribly well with. Right. Um, from the Democrats' perspective, this is the kind of race they need to be able to win if they're going to win a majority in 2018. Uh, it is winnable for a Democrat. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, be easier if they had a candidate who lived in the district, but yeah, you know, wasn't 30 years old. Though the Republican candidate's not all that strong. No, Doug, right. Doug right. makes an important point. If the, if the Democrats are going to pick up 25 right. now seats, yeah. they can maybe pick up five or six in California right away, but right. then there are second and third tier seats. I agree. And this would probably be a second tier seat. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. It Agreed. wouldn't be in the core you know, 25, 30 seats, but right. it would probably be in the next 50. But uh, you're going to lose some of the course. So if you can't um, win some of those in the second tier, yeah, you, know, right. you can't take um, it back. I think that this is going to be interpreted uh, dichotomously. That is that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if the Democrats win, regardless if it's by 10 votes or by a decent amount, uh, this will be the first case where the Democrats have really been able to uh, take some take a seat from Republicans. The previous right. seat, uh, special elections were not ones that Democrats really had much of a shot of winning. But you know they need to win one to show that uh, uh, Trump is unpopular in places that should be relatively good for Republicans. So the effect on Republicans, I think that would be interesting to watch if the Democrats win Georgia 6 would be three things. First of all, does it prompt incumbent Republicans to want to step down thinking, yikes, maybe I need to get out? Right. Secondly, does that then affect the National Republican Congressional Committee's, the NRCC's ability to recruit good candidates? Is somebody going to say, why am I going to run in 2018 and take a beating? And then thirdly, money. 
donors don't like to give in losing cycles. So I'll be curious to see, and I'd be very curious to see if it comes up in your polls, if there's any sort of erosion effect just based on blowing one special election. There shouldn't be. It's just one race. But these things can manifest. I, I think the critical thing is recruitment of candidates. Right. Uh, that the reason the <coughs> Democrats have had trouble in recent midterms mm -hmm. has been poor candidate recruitment. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is a year where the Democratic base is very enthused. Uh, the problem for the Democrats is whether they uh, recruit candidates that really appeal to the base and not to anyone else. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So even you know, Speaker, uh, former Speaker Pelosi sent out a uh, memo saying uh, that choice, that is people who are pro-life, that ought not to be a sine qua non test for uh, Democratic candidates, that they could live with that. And that seems to me to sign that the leadership says uh, you don't want to do what Doug just said, get uh, candidates that appeal just to the base because that, that, that won't do it. Yeah, though I don't think the leadership has much control over what's going to happen in Democratic primaries. But let me say one other thing that I think, uh, no, they don't, but let me say I think that uh, the, the point about um, the Republicans, that, that those candidates, they're still under some pressure because as long as the base is at 75, 70 percent, then if they vote too often against it, they can get a primary opponent. So one thing that, that causes them to hang in and vote with the president when they uh, need to. So when that number gets below the certain point, I think Doug said 30 points, whatever, that's fine with me, I'll take that number. But there's some number at which it falls beneath and the candidate has to say, hey, I gotta lose this seat for the opposite reason I gotta do. And you saw a little of that with Jeff Flake, right. the Arizona senator who said, look, I'll vote for him when, uh, when he's right. But uh, Arizona's value independence, I'll vote for him along. That's easier for a senator to do because the campaigns are more high profile. But that's a little harder for the House to do, so they have to wait longer. Yes, plus the senators can wait a while before they have to run. Yeah, but Flake is... Yes. Uh, That's right. 20, 20, oh, Flake 2018 is, is not a bad year to be a Republican senator. You tend to be running in no, safer states. No, uh, the odds are quite high in their favor. Right. So I was looking at a, uh, a poll that Gallup put out uh, earlier this month, fellas, and uh, they asked uh, approve, disapprove on a whole battery of issues for Donald Trump. His weakest issues, the, the weakest one was health care, 28% approval on health care, Russia relations 30%, environment 32%. At the top of the pyramid, though, immigration at 40%. Nothing was over 50%, by the way. Immigration came in at 40%. The economy came in at 45%. This jives with the real clear politics average, which is about 443 yeah. Terrorism is 46%. Dave, we've talked in the past, you and I have, about the economy becoming more and more of a partisan issue, the idea that your guys in the White House, therefore, the economy is good. Yeah, that's that's what's happened. Uh, the number, uh, John Cochran in his blog last week published a thing that I had given him for the Gallup polls that show uh, Gallup polls that shows that's exactly right. right. When the economy uh, going into 2008 election, Republicans thought the economy was better. Democrats thought it was awful. Immediately after Obama gets elected, Democrats number for the Democrats goes up. Republicans go down, and the same thing has happened with uh, Donald Trump. So, mm -hmm. partisanship affects perceptions of the economy. So healthcare is an interesting one uh, because uh, before Obamacare was passed and after it was passed, but before it was implemented, it was highly unpopular and hurt Democrats a lot. It was a, a thing that you could use to rile up the Republican base. Um, and now the 
repeal of Obamacare is highly unpopular, even though nothing has happened yet. Right. Uh, and it's very effective for Democrats mobilizing their base, and Republicans don't seem quite clear what's going on. In 2010, we did a uh, series of uh, polls in states like Arkansas with Blanche Lambert and others up, and argued in the uh, Wall Street Journal beforehand that this was going to cost Democrats. And it turns out that on the House side, it uh, if you voted for, if you came from a competitive district, one that was around 50% or below mm -hmm. for um, President Obama, and you were a Democrat from that district and voted yes, uh, it cost them 25 seats. Right. So I think that the numbers are looking the same way, and in probably three, four months, we should start, we'll start polling some of those states again. Yeah, it's interesting, though. It happens in reverse with uh, the same places, uh, the same people, and the same issues uh, with it cutting in the opposite direction. So, Doug, YouGov economist asked voters as soon as Trump was inaugurated what, what if they thought Obamacare would be repealed. <coughs> what percentage do you think said that Obamacare will be repealed? Oh. <laughs> of all the whole, everybody, or just Republicans? Overall, overall. And two-thirds? Eighty-six percent. Wow. Now, this is either definitely will be or probably will so be. So I wonder what that number would be if we asked that today. I think that's a great question. Eighty-six percent uh, thought that Obama Obamacare would be repealed. Sixty percent thought taxes would be cut. I'm willing to bet it's lower. Okay. Forty-eight <laughs> percent thought the Trump administration would be transparent. Forty-four percent thought Trump would set a high moral standard. Sixty-one percent thought he'd use the office to enrich family and friends. <laughs> <laughs> this, this to me is kind of the essence of the Trump, of, of, of how especially Republicans looked at Trump coming into office. On the one hand, yeah, he's probably going to cut a lot of corners and do a lot of things we don't like in terms of helping out friends and cronies. Yeah, yeah moral standard, not so sure about that. But, you know, he's probably going to repair, he's probably going to repeal Obamacare and he's going to cut taxes so we can live with this. Well, and that's the question, guys. How long can Republicans live with it? Well, my view is yeah, it hangs on the poll, uh, hangs on the level of support, mm -hmm. and how long that lasts. Right. Well, yeah, I don't five think that in. was the the public deal. I think that's uh, in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, the deal is that uh, you know Republicans in Congress can get things through that they had no chance with uh, Obama in the White House. Right. Um, it goes from uh, something uh, being veto-proof to. Uh, you basically can pass things with a simple majority. Um, the public at large, uh, you know, Democrats <coughs> believe that Trump was uh, corrupt and not transparent and so forth. That's not a change in anyone's view. Um, the real question, because those are easy things for people to understand, I would say, that, mm -hmm. you know, Trump is essentially uh, running government to benefit uh, family and friends. Um, that can't be very popular, um, you know, cozying up to the Russians can't be very popular. Right. Um, but so far, none of those things have really hit home uh, with uh, his base. And that's, that's what surprised me so far. Well, maybe the argument is that if 61% of voters think that he's going to enrich his family, they perhaps hold him to a low ethical standard. And so this becomes a question ultimately of shock value. What can you do to really drive people away? But when you <coughs> quote a number like that, 61%, yeah. That is probably 80% made up of Democrats. Right. Uh, the rest, independents, and a small number of Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we're dealing with one of these weird situations where um, 
the Democrats have not been persuasive uh, uh, on the case of Trump being corrupt and right. in the pocket of the Russians. I agree with that, but just to get away from public opinion for a moment and think, think about what's having a health care, the story that I'm hearing, non-attributable, of course, from Washington is that the Republicans in the Senate and the House on health care, they have uh, simply decided that, uh, so the president uh, says the greatest bill, and then last week he said it was kind of a nasty bill and not kind. And uh, there, so their view is uh, it's gone up for a vote, and if it fails, we'll move on to the ta uh, we'll move on to tax cuts, which is somewhat more important. But uh, one interesting thing on that is the bill has come down, and it's not it didn't go to a regular committee. Right. The reason it didn't go to and so Brian and others are catching trouble for that. The reason it didn't go to a regular committee is because it would have had to go to more than one. The view was there would have been a lot of amendments offered. The parliamentarian would have said at a certain point, hey, it's too many amendments for this to be considered reconciliation. So the Republicans keeping the committee, or not committee, but the special select group, is to keep the bill from being having too many amendments so that it would lose its reconciliation status. Because if it loses its reconciliation status, you have to have 60 votes, and they certainly don't have that. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, the procedural stuff is in the hands of Mitch McConnell, uh, who's as good as this as anybody. Uh, the public, I don't think, is really paying attention and probably doesn't care that much about the procedural side of it. They don't at all. Right. Uh, but I mean by that more, I mean to say that the Republicans, there are, uh, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is, the Republicans in the House and Senate, not in their public statements, but in their private statements are saying, look, we got to get along with passing this legislation and we're going to give it to him and he'll sign it. Uh, and, and they have, so there's a certain sense in which they have given up on him being a leader. Right. And Senator Sass, the Republican of Nebraska, is of course uh, one of the leaders in, say, in saying exactly that. We got to get on with our agenda. Good luck with that. <laughs> we'll see. Gentlemen, does the public care whether or not Congress stays in session in August? No. That is that is today's that is today's talk in Washington. They're gonna they're gonna stay in August by God and do the people's work. Yeah, I, from the public They may care in that perspective, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse, uh, whether Congress stays in uh, in session and does something or you, you, uh, they uh, go on vacation and are lazy. You, you uh, have to understand before you hear Doug, the rest of Doug's speech is that Doug, Doug th thinks that the six worst words, the most dangerous words in the English language are being enacted by the Congress. <laughs> so you have to... Well, uh, congressional approval ratings are uh, in the single digits, so... Um, I don't think they can win either way. Come on, a couple of them, they're up at 12, 13 points. Yes, but I, I do think, mm -hmm. in just the way you put it, if the issue is framed as, right. you know, you can't get anything to why aren't you doing the business, then I think the answer is yes, they do care. Right. Now, speaking of can't win, is there any way that the Russian investigation, the Mueller investigation, is there any way that this could end up in a nonpartisan, 80% of Democrats love it, 80% of Republicans hate it, or vice versa? Is there any way there can be a bipartisan outcome here? No. No. Um... Geez, you would hope so. I, uh, so first of all, I, I mean, I'm one of those people who believe that it's, that it's not ultimately going to get to Trump, that, that he himself did not do anything there that would be 
cause him to lo- uh, be, be impeached, so etc. So I could be going, wrong, so but that, going, my view is that. But so you're, beneath not going him, any, so you're not going to any articles being drafted, no House Judiciary, none being of that. underneath, Being underneath it, what happens with those things is, remember the... Uh, uh, what's the guy? The guy that did it for uh, President of Baylor, Ken Starr. Mm-hmm. Ken Starr started out, uh, and it went from whatever. Well, Whitewater it started, it went it from Whitewater with, to Monica started with, Lewinsky. Started with an Arkansas yeah, real estate exactly. investigation. Right. Then got exactly. in, then it got into sexual harassment, and yeah. then ended up. So that's with so the Obama fact is, right. that's what happens when you have these special investigators. They go they go all over the place because right. they come to you to say something. You go, oh well, yeah, but what about this? And then it moves on. Yeah, so I agree with Dave that I don't think the smoking gun is going to be there on Trump and Russia. (laughs) On the obstruction issue, what's out there is pretty much out there. I mean, we know what happened. Uh, He clearly was trying to end the investigation, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't uh, any more than there was much doubt about what Bill Clinton was trying to do with uh, Monica Lewinsky's testimony. He didn't want her to testify. Um, Trump wants the Russia investigation dropped. He said it publicly. Um, As long as there's not a smoking gun, I don't see how uh, they get him on that. Does does the polling show in any way that the public is engaged in this topic? No. Very little. Again, it's just a completely partisan response. It's CNN, Fox, Mm -hmm. the people who watch MSNBC, people who watch that from either the right or the left, they're on it constantly and the rest thank god the rest of america is well for it to catch fire there needs to be something people can understand a financial deal a pay 17 minutes of missing uh Uh, or john dean saying they were recorded you have to have something like that right uh so right now it's it's very partisan uh it's you know making it impossible for trump to get anything done Mm -hmm. uh but it's I don't see him at risk yet. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so final question. I'll let you fellows go. You have been asked to write a memo to the president about how to get things moving again just based on what your polling shows. What does he go out and talk about? Drop Twitter. <laughs> start yeah, the, listening. The key is not to talk. <laughs> Drop Twitter. Start listening to your, your, your best eight days were when you were on the road because apparently uh, they kept him from getting out and tweeting uh, stuff that gets him in trouble. Right. Uh, so I start paying attention to your advisors, start paying attention to people who know how their system works, mm-hmm. and stop tweeting. That's the one thing that the YouGov surveys show. There, there's a lot of bipartisanship. Democrats, Republicans, everybody says stop tweeting. Yeah, I mean, Trump shoots himself in the foot uh, at least a few times a week, uh, usually in odd hours on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no discipline to the message. Uh, it appeals to part of his base, though. That's the authentic part. Um, so I'm not 100% sure that if he uh, became more conventional, it would improve his popularity at all. It certainly would make life easier for the other people in the administration and in Congress. And well, I actually think there are a lot. Look, I, I think there are a lot of people who, would, a lot of people who want to see the president of the United States do well. Right. irrespective of his uh, party. There may be fewer of those now than there used to be, but there's still a lot of people like that. So if he, uh, I don't, I mean, he's not going to go to 70%, but if, uh, but if he could uh, mm-hmm. act more presidential, less tweeting, I, I think he, he set could a bar get in the 50s. If he improves relative to this, his, pop, you know, his approval will go up for yeah. marginal voters and yeah. independents. He doesn't have to do a whole lot better 
uh, before people would notice that were it was better. See, that's, that's a, that, right. that seems to me to be an exceedingly crucial point. How much better do you have to be to get back up over to 50, et cetera, and make things run? I don't think he has to be that good. I don't ever, think he has to be never, a 70. He's never been a 50% candidate, right. though, has right. he? Right. right. And he never will be. Right. Well, I wouldn't. Well, I'm not going there. So if his, feel, if his, ceiling is, if his ceiling's not 50%, then what's the floor, Doug? But right now the floor looks like it's in the high 30s. High 30s. Okay. So what what's really the panic alarm at the White House? Well, or, or should the White House even look at that number or just focus on the scoreboard in terms of what they're doing? Well, he doesn't have to run for re-election anytime soon, so it really doesn't make any difference if his popularity is low from that perspective. Right. Know? But there does, are but there are House Republicans. The, it does for the there. House elections. Right. It does for uh, some Senate elections. And the other thing is, at the end of five months, the economy is still performing reasonably well. We have not had a period where uh, there was a slight recession, an economic downturn. We haven't had any uh, major foreign event that uh, cast doubt on it. And uh, we'll, we'll see if at some point, you know, we've had a long, longest run of growth, not as substantial as it could have been perhaps, mm -hmm. but the point is we've had a long run of growth. That drops off and we have a slight recession of a couple uh, quarters. Then then I think his popularity ratings are, are, are going to drop. Uh, that That's when you see the test. Still waiting to see what will sink him. <laughs> and we'll leave it on that. If note. anything. Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, thanks for coming to the studio today. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenue is available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. David Brady is not on Twitter and proud of it. Exactly. Doug Rivers, however, is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is Send any comments about me to Doug. <laughs> and Doug will send you Dave's cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Rivers is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Dov, Doug underscore Rivers. That's at Doug underscore Rivers. And you can find his good polling work at YouGov's Twitter feed, and their Twitter handle is at YouGov. That's Y-O-U-G-O-V. Gentlemen, anything else I can plug while I got you here? No. <laughs> For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.